Hi, I'm Bridget Lazda. I'm the Chief Customer Officer for King Juice. And what I love about retail is how personal the experience can be driven by ever-changing innovation. From New York City, you're listening to Retail is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the retail industry. Hi, I'm Rob Sanchez. I'm here with Bridget Lasta. And Bridget, you are the Chief Customer Officer at uh, King Juice and Calypso. And I'd just love to have you tell us really quick, why is it Chief Customer and what does that mean for you? And then we can dive right in. Sure. So I think some people in the industry would consider it a, a sales, but uh, you know we are a customer-facing organization, and so chief customer keeps the customer front of mind. But really, my responsibility is to lead our King Juice, our Calypso sales organization and business, which is domestic and international. So I lead a sales team of less than 30 people across the U.S. and also manage our international brokers where we're in over 20 countries. Thank you. I want to dive a little bit into the history of Calypso and, and how you came about. I did a little bit of reading beforehand, but always better to hear from the person themselves. Can you talk a little bit about how the brand has developed and changed over the last few years and where you're at now? So the story of Calypso started before 2000. King Juice was actually founded in 1985 in Milwaukee. And then it wasn't until 2000 where Calypso Lemonade was launched as the first flavored lemonade out in the market. It took 13 years until our next big innovation was launched in Limeades. And then a couple of years later, uh, Mason Wells, a private equity firm out of Milwaukee, purchased Calypso. And with that came a change in leadership and influx of resources and funding. And then shortly thereafter, within the year, David Clavsons, a CEO, came on board and put together a really fantastic executive team. And with that came some evaluation of the brand and what was going to take the brand to the next level. And so there was a refresh of the label, which I've worked on a lot of brands and have never seen a, a label refresh do what it has done to Calypso. With that also came marketing and sales investments, um, doing more on social and digital platforms. And then in 2019, we really started to see the, the growth acceleration where you know prior to 2019, relatively flat, a little bit of growth. 2019 up over 30%, 2020 up over 60 and having another strong year in 2021. In 2020 is also when we launched Calypso Lights. So we had looked in the market and saw that there was an opportunity for lights as soft drinks and juices and teas were about 25% of their category was made up of low or no calorie, low sugar. And so that was the launch of Calypso Lights and really thrilled with that innovation and how that's been able to help us expand, expand the portfolio. As I mentioned, 2021, a lot of growth already, and we've just kicked off our 2022 planning where we are building plans to continue this momentum and see another great year of growth next year. Did you see any effects with the pandemic where you went from being a last minute purchase to being something that customers were seeking out or anything like that? Did messaging change? What was the impact of the last couple of years? If you're experiencing a boom of growth, that's really interesting for the timing. Yes, I think some of that came with 
the changing in the the labeling of the brand, and again, people being able to just better clearly see what Calypso was all about. We also started operating with our distributors and our retailers differently, and so gaining more and higher share of mind with them and expanding our space and store, which then continues to build covenants with our distributors. And then through the pandemic, quite frankly, we were growing before the pandemic, and I think some of that had to do with the way that we were working in market and, and with our partners. And then some of the behaviors that I think a lot of different brands and categories saw was around consumption of, of things that make people feel good. You know, people couldn't go on vacation. And if you look at a Calypso bottle, I'm looking at one right now, it says Calypso taste of the islands. So if you weren't able to go on that beach vacation that you had thought about, you can spend less than $2 and pick up a bottle of lemonade and it'll make you feel like you're on the islands. And so, you know, those were some of the behaviors that we saw through the pandemic. But again, we were growing before that. And I think being able to start to ramp up our distribution in the market helped us prepare for the behaviors that started to change with the pandemic. And then through that, people have continued to love Calypso and what they bought while they were sitting at home for months. Now that life is kind of getting back to somewhat normalcy, they're continuing to buy Calypso. Yeah, that's really good. How have you been impacted by supply chain changes and things like that? Is it fairly stable for you? Are you invested in like a local supply chain or how does that play in with you as you expand globally and, and expand your market share here in the U.S.? Sure. We have definitely been impacted with the supply chain challenges that most all have across industries. So we've had to work really closely with our partners. You know, I'll talk about our distributor partners. Before the beginning of the summer, we would work with them on, on a standard lead time of call it three weeks or so. We started better forecasting with our distributors about anticipating some of the challenges that were happening across the, the market and getting orders in sooner so we could be better planning our supply chain. Really, it's a lot of open communication. I think our operations team has done a fantastic job of working with other partners on what's the best transportation model for us, our suppliers on how do we get our ingredients quicker or any of our raw materials quicker. And then in the global market, you know, just staying close to what is happening with the ocean freight and how long something takes to get from the U.S. to overseas and how we work with them on that order frequency to make sure that they're keeping their customers in stock with our product, even though everyone is experiencing these similar supply chain challenges. Have you found any changes in the way that suppliers, is there like a modernization of communication inside of that group or anything like that that's allowing you to be more flexible now? Yes, we're moving towards a, a transportation management system. We've also talked about in the future, you know, how do we do more online ordering and then also brainstorming with our distributors on what innovation and technology that they are utilizing and what's something that we could partner with them on in the future so we can better streamline our operations and get Calypso to them quicker. Do you expect this to be like a world of robots or is it something where you're finding that it's more about communication inside of the innovation? I think so. I, I don't think that our businesses uh, will be a, a world of robots. I mean, there are too many humans, I think, involved. What is interesting when you talk about a world of robots is working with our retail partners. You know, Walmart has tremendous innovation by way of in-store and 
filling the shelves when people, you know, as a lot of companies are experiencing labor shortages and the inability to get actual humans in buildings, they've got some awesome innovation on using robots. And I think, you know, you see that outside of just our industry. So I'm wondering for Calypso, as there's innovation on the in-store and so on, are you also seeing opportunities to innovation inside of your own facilities and your own production process? Yes. And I would say also expanding our production. So we have, you know, since, uh, well, 1985 for King Juice and since 2004, Calypso manufactured all of the product out of Milwaukee. As we have seen this explosive growth after over the last couple of years, and we see that continuing for the foreseeable future, we have had to figure out co-packing opportunities. And so we will start to co-pack in the south of France to service the majority of our you know, European and international business. And then we are looking at other COPAC opportunities in domestically to fulfill the demand that we've got. How important was the story out of Milwaukee in kind of establishing the, I guess, credibility of the brand and the early identity of the brand? And then how is that going to either grow or change as you shift where the actual production is? You know, the story is always about Calypso. We don't necessarily use Milwaukee. I think that for our customers that are in the Midwest and specifically Wisconsin in that upper Midwest area, that has, you know, longstanding ties with distributors and retailers in those markets. But at the end of the day, and, and really what this, what Calypso has been about, has been about the best tasting flavored lemonades and Calypso. You know, when you asked about the timeline of Calypso, and I mentioned JoJo and using JoJo, sharing stories on the back of the bottle. So that's really what it's about. So it doesn't matter where we produce the product. People are still going to get like the best flavored lemonade under the Calypso name, regardless of where it's manufactured. Okay, that's really interesting, because I know that there's a lot of companies that are playing up their manufacturing routes as their primary story. So it's interesting to see that that's not really tied to the core identity. When you're thinking about the future, I noticed that right now you're doing a, we just turned 21, here's how you use this in mixers. Do you see other categories that you might expand into and grow the same way that you were able to see that opportunity and jump on the light? And actually like back historically, you did it with Limeade too. Right. So what I'll tell you is we've got a very robust innovation pipeline. We are first and foremost focused on the core. We are still under a 50% ACV or distribution nationally. So there's a lot more work that we need to do in our core portfolio to make sure that we are getting that into retail and into people's hands. But we've got a great innovation pipeline with, I guess, the, the biggest difference launch being the Calypso lights. But we're testing a lot of different things to see how it would play out and trying to stay ahead of the innovation curve. Something that we have tested, and, and this is next on the horizon, not in the immediate future, would be multi-packs. You know, we know that people are buying multiple Calypso bottles. So looking at a multi-pack, then farther down the line would be a multi-serve. You know, we also know that the value channel is an enormous 
channel in retail? And so what could a package look like in the value channel? Um, so different pack types on innovation, uh, flavor innovation. People love the flavors and the colors. So continuously looking at that and making sure that we keep that exciting. But again, we are first and foremost focused on the core product and making sure that we are driving our distribution, our sales there. But we've got a, a great, great innovation pipeline for the coming years. Yeah. And when you're focusing on that core, is that mainly relationships? How do you end up developing? This is actually an area I don't know all that much about. So I'm really fascinated by understanding how you would grow a market share inside of a core product category like that. So while yes, relationships are definitely important, but I have never worked on another brand and I've worked for the Coca-Cola company and I've worked for Heineken. We have the best data story. You know, we are the fastest turning lemonade when we rank ourselves against other juice and other tea, which is typically where we are found in shelf. We've got top velocities. Recently, though, just looking outside of those two categories and looking at coffee and energy and just straight sparkling soft drinks or carbonated soft drinks, you know, our velocity competes with all of those big name brands. So while yes, we build relationships, we're also a, a small sales team, a relatively small sales team. And so for us, the numbers really work in our favor. And in a time where retails, buyers, their shelves, their aisles and doors are not getting any larger and they are continuously being compressed. And there is a lot of innovation that continues to come down the pipeline. We are confident in our story that you place a Calypso and it's going to turn and it's going to generate some dollars for them. That's really where we lead. Now on the relationship side is how you continue to follow up and how you take that story and then you follow up and you continue to grow the brand there. That's on the retail side. On the distributor side would be the same. They need to see those sales velocities so they know that the product is going to turn. It's not going to sit in their warehouse and we've got distribution for them. And then also on the relationship side is that follow-up, is how do we help them sell more? And um, our team has done a tremendous job of that, just being out there and, and using our story uh, while also building the relationships. That makes a lot of sense. When you have a fast turn like that, then that also means that you're selling your ability to deliver product to meet that as well, right? Dead shelf space doesn't work. I can see like you have to really show responsiveness, ability to deliver, and then the actual effectiveness of the sales. So what does your, your data capture and that side look like then? Is there anything special that you're doing in telling that data story or is that fairly just locked in with what the industry is doing as a standard? No, we have a lot of data with our distributors. So we have the syndicated IRI data that we use that shows that we are the fastest turning, that from a single serve standpoint, we are actually bigger in dollar size than Minute Maid. As it relates to the physical delivery of the product, we utilize VIP Vermont information processing with our distributors. And so we get their internal data, which also gives us their inventory information. So we would work with them on understanding how much inventory do they have in their warehouse? How much product do they need to fulfill an order? For example, this year we got into 500 Walmart mods, that's short for modular, on basically 500 shelf placements in Walmart. And so we had that list of Walmart stores and then married that up with what distributor was responsible for those Walmart outlets and then worked with them on what inventory they had, prioritizing these orders to make sure that they were fulfilled so that when the mod 
went live, what they call it, that those distributors had the product and were able to fulfill the orders. Now, nothing is perfect. It's not a perfect science, but we do have a bunch of different data sets that we're able to marry together to make sure that, you know, once we've closed the sale with a retailer, that we're able to work with the distributors to fulfill the order on shelf. I know that right now there's a lot of empty shelf space in New York where there's a supply chain shortages and so on. And I don't know if that's echoed across the US. Have you seen places where you're maybe competing against empty shelves because of your ability to effectively manage the distributors? No doubt. I mean, with the effect of, I guess, what could have started with the pandemic and now just the global issues with supply chain, I live in Connecticut. And so I'm in this market a lot. And in and out of stores, whether it's a grocery store, a Walmart, or a convenience store. And it really is mind-blowing how much shelf space is left with no product. I've recently been traveling a lot more for work. So just last week, I was in California and saw the same thing. About a month ago, I was in Indiana. And then just this week, I was in Florida. And regardless of where I've been in the country, I've seen those same supply chain effects on other brands. So really, it's I think right now and next year and probably past next year, the brands that are going to do the best are the brands that are that have product. And it won't matter how great your story is or how great your relationship is. If you don't have product for distributors to have in their warehouse to fulfill retail on shelf and in coal vault, it's not going to matter. What I've been most proud about, and you know, we've had our bumps in the road, you know, the last year with supply, we have really worked with our ops team and our distributor partners and retailers on fulfilling the orders as best as we can. That makes a lot of sense. And it's it's interesting to see that it's a management thing where you're managing all up and down the supply chain from a numbers perspective, but also from that planning perspective. Do you think there's going to be any shifts in retail that will impact what you're doing coming up or any changes that you are thinking about now in, in terms of like resiliency planning? Or do you think it's more of just continuing to execute the way that you have been? Probably a little bit of both. We definitely have to execute how we've been plus more. We have aspirations to continue to expand our distribution, which means our execution has to be even that much better. But then there's also innovation in retail. There's always new products coming out that we need to stay on top of and make sure that we continue to gain our fair share plus in the market. So for sure, that resiliency effect just on the year-to-year changes that happen in retail, and then also us continuing to execute and execute even better to continue to grow our, our market share. There have been a couple of weird like hybrids coming out in the market that I've seen, like the abomination that is Coke plus coffee, which is also quite useful if you're driving long distances. Are you thinking at all about like shifting and fracturing categories and how it's going to affect what you're doing? Or I guess what I'm really interested in is in fashion, which I'm a little bit more aware of, there've been like category splitters, right? Where you kind of exist in this middle lane and then you build your own lemonade wasn't a thing. Now it's a thing. And then that kind of creates this wedge in the market and you can open up. But I'm wondering how that plays out in beverages where I'm starting to see all all of these hybrids that don't fit on the shelf, or I'm guessing they don't fit because they're stocked in really weird locations inside the store. And I'm wondering how like thinking about that and that changing landscape of beverage is going to impact a brand like yours? And then how do you both like capture land in that landscape? And how do you keep from losing land in that landscape as well? 
there's so much disruption there. And, you know, you said lemonade is not a thing and, and now it is a thing. And I'll tell you, we still have a way to make it a thing. You know, a lot of times we're working with buyers on where's the best spot for us. And it is real interesting to see you've got a lot of non or historically non-alcoholic brands um, get into the alcohol space. And that's something that actually Clipso had done years before. And it's something that we recently reformulated and we won't commercialize anything right now at the moment, but we know that we could in the future. And I think that's some serious disruption. You know, you've got a, a great loyal following in the non-alc space, and then you're able to come out with something for the adults in the alcoholic space. Flavor innovation and how different flavors come to be. You know, we've got a great flavor provider and he's all over all the different innovative flavors and, and what's new and exciting. That's something that I think just always drives excitement. But then really for our innovation, it really goes to expanding our core business and then getting into other pack types for Calypso, you know, as you see evolution of other brands on shelf and moving from singles to multi-packs to multi-serve. But there's definitely a lot of blurring of innovation and blurring of categories to figure out like, where do you live? And it's watching the consumer and like where they are going. Yeah. As someone who doesn't drink alcohol, it's been really interesting for me to see the rise of non-alcoholic beverages that are in the adult category. I'm wondering if, if that's a space where it's almost like let other people go first and then follow. But is that something that you're looking at where most of your flavors right now, if I was to think about them as a consumer, I'd be thinking about them as like a, something I'd have at lunch or something I'd have while relaxing versus something I'd have while listening to jazz. Or you know. <laughs> I'm wondering if there's room inside of that for what you're doing or, or is that off of the brand that you're creating? No, I don't think so. I mean, we talk a lot about occasions and you see that from a pack type, but with what flavors... Or I guess within this space, you know, we had teas at one point, Clipso teas, and that's something else that we're looking at commercializing. We had had teas and lemonades before. So, you know, you kind of break that, as you were saying, lunch or a snack and then to jazz. So, you know, we're looking at some of that flavor. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. <laughs> I did see a coffee and lemonade and I tried it out because it seemed like I didn't expect it to last on the shelf that long. I would say that it probably won't last on the shelf that long. <laughs> but you know, you got to give people credit for trying. But that's really when we go back to our data story. We have got proven brands and flavors that work on the shelf. And while I'm a huge proponent of innovation, like I said earlier, retailers only have so much space on the shelf and distributors only have so much warehouse space. And so for us, we stick with, we are the fastest turning, you put us on shelf and it's going to turn and you don't have to worry about that other concoction and not knowing what that's going to do. So Minute Maid kind of became, they're almost like a generic brand now. Like they're, they're just like, that's their thing. And you've come up and passed them. What do you think from like a trademark and story and resonance side, are you playing up the fact that you're beating these like these old incumbents? Or do you think that that's kind of a story that's helpful in the data side, but not helpful on the customer side? So it's definitely helpful on the data side. What Minimate has going for it is they're part of a larger portfolio. So someone can make a decision to place Minimate, and it really doesn't have much to do with Minimate. It has to do with the rest of the portfolio that they're a part of, and that's the designated space for that segment. 
So what we play up is how we perform against all competitors and showing retailers and helping just guide or and providing suggestions on if you had so many spots for, you know, a lemonade or innovation in your set here, if we're not currently in distribution with this retailer, we would put ourselves in there in their data set to show like, here's how we would perform in your set and be able to show them that instead of playing up just one. And then many times they're able to see it through the data and then realize that, again, we're going to be a fast turner for them. I really enjoyed the conversation about just like for me, a lot of new learning about how to think about the numbers and the presentation and, and the brand story and so on in, in the context of the shelf and the retailer. I'd like to talk a little bit about the people that make that happen and the development of the team that you've put together and, and how you're playing and, and growing that team. Um, and just the fact that 30 people is covering so much territory is very interesting as well. I'd love to just start there and see where you want to take that and, and what you want to unpack. Yeah, great. Thank you. No, it's probably, you know, one of my most favorite things to talk about because we've got a fantastic brand with Calypso and that can get us so far. And then really we've put together just a fantastic total company team with all that's been done across King Juice. And then specifically, as I think about our, our sales team, the way that we have restructured, and I'll really just start there and then talk about some of the capabilities that we've built with the team to utilize the data. Like I was telling you, that has really helped us continue to sell. So when I first joined, again, we were probably about 20 people in sales. So we really haven't added that many people. And we had split the country in half. We had a sales director on the East and the West that really focused on our distributors. And then a, a key account director or a, a customer sales director for the East and West that did the same thing. And while we probably wouldn't meet with a lot of our distributors and retailers on a, you know, a real frequent basis weekly. We're more meeting with people a couple times a month, but there are some distributors and retailers, it's a couple times a year. So one of the first things that we did was we broke the country into four, you know, Northeast, Southeast, Central, and West, the way a lot of like the retailers and the dis distributors operate. We also segmented our distributors as well to say, okay, where are the more complex distributors, like who do we need to spend more time on? It's bigger business. They have retailers and we just need to spend more time there. And so as we were able to start to delineate some differences with the team and understand how we were going to spend our time, we were able to build up some of those relationships and really tell the Calypso story a lot more clearer. And the distributors see that, look, we've got a story, we've got a plan and build some capability around how do we help the distributor sell more? So did a lot more on that, on that end. And then as I think about the, the customer team, you know, also a, an East customer director, a West customer director, but we started building capabilities within our organization that the region sales managers would typically call on a distributor. There are so many regional customers that have, you know, five to 35 outlets in a particular market. And we wanted to build up their capability. So they weren't only calling on the distributors in that market, but they were able to call on the regional retailers in that market as well. I'm really proud to say that we've gone from under a 30 ACV to over 40 um, in a short period of time and with aspirations to get to 50 pretty quickly. And so with that came the, the capability building of better understanding our data, the VIP that I mentioned, the IRI, and just a, a clearer way to tell the Calypso story. And the team's done fantastic and the results are, are there to prove it. As you were 
Going through the exercise of splitting up and breaking it down, did you find anything that surprised you inside of the data? Were you finding that maybe like local convenience stores were converting higher or anything like that, that that kind of stood out as an anomaly? I think we saw markets where we were well under-indexed or well over-indexed that we could, you know, spend more time in just looking at some of those data points, you know, and looking at California and, you know, we're bigger than Minute Maid there. And so being able to use that for our selling stories, breaking it down where I said, you know, from a single serve perspective, we are bigger than Minute Maid nationally. So just like looking at some of that data and also with the distributor, looking at their information. And like I said, having the data to review with them, their sales, their inventory, which really hadn't been done. You know, I think it's when David came on that they got the VIP data where then the regional sales managers and directors could have that conversation with the distributors. Well, previously it was the distributors providing us that information versus the other way around where we could be more proactive with it. Were there roles that you needed to build out on the team that were unique to what was there before? Or was it more like the the structure of the communication and the um, connection points that was different? Meaning like, did you need more data scientists? Did you need... Sure, no. What we did found was that we need more what we call business development specialists. And there are folks that are the closest to the market. Some work that David had done before was around testing some different roles. And one of the things that was found was that the role that we called business development specialists, where they were really focused on the mass merch channel or going into Walmart and targets and locally selling there versus what we would call an up and down the street account rep, where they would just go into any independent or any convenience store. And we found that the roles that were going in and, and locally selling into the Walmarts and targets were, were much more effective. We were able to gain more distribution. We were able to get bigger displays, quicker in store. And so once we saw that, we decided to deploy those roles throughout the country and adding more of those throughout the country to really help us get after that business, which quite frankly is one of the reasons why I think we were able to get into 500 shelf placements in Walmart this year was from the success that we've seen over the last couple of years from the local sell from our business development specialists along with our regional sales managers. Was that a role that you were able to basically just retrain internally or was that a new hiring process with a different skill set to start with? Those were roles that we had had a few in place, but that we needed to hire for. And then they have, they're already showing to be able to be roles to be promoted into our regional sales manager roles. So we're building a bit of a, a hierarchy in the sense that there's more career pathing here. So someone could come in as a business development specialist, get a lot of success out in the market, and then a regional sales manager role opens, that role being more specific to calling on distributors and retailers, and a BDS potentially being promoted into that regional sales manager role. And then the like of a region sales manager role, having developed the capability of working more deeply with the distributor, beginning to call on some regional retailers, be prepared to be promoted into a director role in the future as well. I really love that we spent so much time on the team. I think that it's interesting to see how you had restructured and rethought that. Are there any final thoughts that you kind of want to wrap up with, both about your team and, and then about the overall brand and story? Sure. What I would say about the team is it's one of the best teams that I've ever had the chance to work on. You know, we are 
we're unlike other teams that I've been a part of where we don't have the same type of resources from coming from another big company. So our team really has to grit it out every day and they're just doing a, a fantastic job. And we've got this phenomenal brand in Calypso that enables us to do that. And the story that's like none other that I've been a part of and to be able to go in and, and share that and show distributors and retailers how we can grow their business has really been fantastic and, and really exciting. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed sitting down and talking through everything with you and thank you for taking the time today. This has been Retail Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2020. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.